Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and thank you for listening to episode 34 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. This is the show for those of you who love to live on the intersection of American and Latino pop culture. On this week's episode, I have an in-depth discussion on Wonder Woman with the editor-in-chief of RottenTomatoes.com, Matt Atchity. And we also discuss the future of movie critics and what Rotten Tomatoes is doing about the lack of Spanish movie reviews on its site. We also talk to actress Alexa Peña Vega. You know her from the very successful Spy Kids franchise films from Robert Rodriguez. This time around, she's starring in a new TV movie on the Hallmark Channel called Destination Wedding. And we talked about everything from why she got sick of the L.A. scene and moved to Hawaii, the ambiguity of non-ethnic-looking Latina actresses, and her opinions on today's use of social media and her place in it. And we finish off by chatting with October Gonzalez, the co-host DJ of Fox's new game show, Beat Shazam, hosted by Jamie Foxx. She tells me how she landed her new gig, her first encounter with Jamie Foxx, and if she could take on Shazam and win. That plus my review of Wonder Woman and a look at the best movies, TV shows, and albums you need to check out this June. Joining me now to talk about Wonder Woman and its influence on movies today, plus the future of movie reviews, is Matt Atchity, editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomato. Matt, thanks for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So when was the first time you saw Wonder Woman? Uh, God, I think it was about almost a month ago. I got to go into a really early screening um, and was really excited that they had uh, pretty much nailed it. Now, what exactly was it, as soon as you saw it, that you said, okay, this movie is going to be gangbusters? Because it's 96% right now currently on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, every big movie critic is hailing it as like the next big thing in, 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 in uh, superhero films. What did you see that made this movie special to you? You know, I was in the middle of the film and uh, watching it, and number one, I wasn't checking my watch, uh, right. which is a big one because sometimes that happens. Um, so I found myself really invested in the story that Gal Gadot's character, uh, Diana was going through. And to the point that by the end of the film, um, I, I was feeling an empathy and an emotional resonance. And it helps that the chemistry between Chris Pine and Gal Gadot is so good. Uh, and you know, it's got all the elements that I think that fans are really expecting. Um, you know, and again, as I was watching the film, I was thinking, okay, it delivers on the action. It's fun. It's got characters that people care about. And it wasn't until the very end of the film that I thought, okay, this is what everybody's wanting to see. This is what everyone's going to hope for. And I think it's going to do gangbusters because people are going to be so excited. You know, one of the interesting things about this film in particular uh, that I noticed is that DC decided to leave all the overcomplicated depth uh, uh, that they've given all these other films and they kind of just made a pragmatic, very delineated villain hero story that is direct to the line. I mean, uh, it didn't overcomplicate it. It's pretty simple and straight to the point. And I felt like you understood the characters better. You understood the flow better. I think that, for example, Batman versus Superman, it was so disjointed. It was all over the place. I, I felt like it was, it should have been a four hour film, uh, here, it was basic and simple, and I felt like people got it, and if people wanted to root for Wonder Woman 
to begin with. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that I think the film works well. Do you agree? Uh, I do agree. I think one of the challenges that DC's had or Warner Brothers has had bringing the DC universe to film is, you know, they're looking at what Marvel's done and that shared universe. And I think that what they're trying to achieve, I think they they're trying to achieve too quickly without really earning it. And it's not that the DC characters are any worse. And, but I think one of the challenges that they've had is they've jumpstarted this shared universe without really giving us the depth of character. And, you know, when you look at, for instance, you know, I'm glad you brought up Batman v Superman. When you look at that versus civil war, those two movies carry a lot of the, cover a lot of the same territory about people on different sides of a philosophical belief. And one of them believes that, you know, there's a certain obligation that you have. And another one may believe that there's a certain um, rules that you have to follow. And, you know, you end up with heroes fighting. And again, it covers some similar themes, but I think the one that resonated more is the one that you'd had, you know, umpteen movies going into it that you established these relationships with these characters. It was about time. I mean, socially and politically speaking, we couldn't uh, put a woman in the White House. So I think there's this... Uh, like a feminist movement amongst men as well, um, where this this movie is also like one of those uh, first quadrants. It just kind of fits everything, male, female. It's an appeal to over 25, under 25. And it, it's like the superhero we need right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is one of those movies that I think that people are going to be really happy with. And, you know, you can look at it. I mean, it's easy to watch this and just say, yeah, sure, it's pure escapist fare. But you could also say that there's a political statement to have, you know, a director, Patty Jenkins, who directed Monster, um, directing a story about a female. Uh, and, you know, arguably, you could say that, that movies directed by females, by women, carry a different point of view about female stories than, say, female stories directed by men. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a bit of a political statement just in, in who gets to do the job um, that, you know, I think is important. And I think that that's going to help, you know, ultimately, look, the Wonder Woman story is the story of a woman who, you know, decides what she's going to fight for. And I think that it is entirely appropriate, not that, a, not that a male director couldn't do that, but you know what? I love that we've got a female point of view uh, behind the camera helping tell that story. And what? I think that's great. Why do you think Catherine Bigelow wasn't the one that directed this film? Uh, you know, there's so much war going on <laughs> in this film. Uh, right. That it right. felt like in her hands, it just would have been much more authentic to a certain extent. Well, you know, I think when you look at that, you start looking into the business and you have to start looking into how Hollywood works. And, uh, you know, Patty Jenkins is a great director. She's, you got, you know, an Oscar winning film under her belt. Um, however, you know, Catherine Bigelow is somebody that comes into a project and is going to have a very specific vision and probably wants to pick her own projects. And when you, you know, again, I don't want to keep completely comparing DC to Marvel, but Marvel movies, they have this house style. And you look at a lot of what they've been doing is bringing in directors who have a TV background because TV directors are, and I'm painting it very broad strokes here, are, are oftentimes more willing cheaper to, to hire. <laughs> well, cheaper to hire, but also they'll, they'll work to an existing style, right? So, they're easily more you know, molded like, than a big ego of a big time director. Well, yeah, that's probably part of it too, right? I mean, in fact, you're right. That's, I'm dancing around it, but you're absolutely right. Like, <laughs> you can bring in somebody like Patty Jenkins and she, you know, the best face I can put on it is that you know, it's probably going to be easier to find that balance between her vision and what the studio wants to do versus uh, what happens when you've got um, something like uh, Catherine Bigelow, who can kind of do whatever she wants. And so, you know, if that offer had gone out, I'm sure, you know, I could easily see Catherine Bigelow say, sure, I get to redo the script. I get to put everything in there that I want. I get to put, take everything out of there that I don't want. And probably at the studio, it's, oh, well, we need someone we can push around just a little bit. <laughs> not that Patty Jenkins is a pushover. I'm not saying that at all. But she may not yet have the political capital. Although after this film opens, 
be able to direct anything she wants. It's going to be one of the biggest opening movies of the year. Uh, moving over to Rotten Tomatoes, 96% for this film makes it the highest rated superhero film on your site currently. Does it indicate that it's a better, more acclaimed film than The Dark Knight? Because I think arguments will ensue if people start making those assessments. Absolutely. People will definitely argue. I What, what the difference in percentages will mean is that there is a higher percentage of critics that liked Wonder Woman than liked The Dark Knight. Uh, but... You look at some of the iconic movies from the last 15 years Mm -hmm. and, you know, the ones who really swing for the fences artistically, like that will turn critics off sometimes, which is, you know, shows you that you've got, you know, an artistic uh, ambition that you're willing to leave some audiences behind. So, um, you know, if it sounds like I'm splitting hairs here, I, you know, I think that we are looking at the distinct possibility that Wonder Woman at least until the next film comes along, it may be may end up being the highest, best-reviewed superhero film on the site that we've ever seen. See, now that's uh, incredible because I really enjoyed the film, but I cannot call Wonder Woman a masterpiece, you know? Where would you rank Wonder Woman amongst the all the films that you've seen? I'm not just talking about female like Supergirl from 84. I'm talking about from the very first one until now, until... Uh, the recent Avengers, uh, where would you rank Wonder Woman? Absolutely in the top 10. And honestly, I will say that that movie is, you know, look, like I'm glad you brought up The Dark Knight. I love The Dark Knight, but I think Batman Begins is a tighter film than The Dark Knight. Um, I think The Dark Knight does some really impressive stuff, but then it also makes some mistakes. I don't think that an action movie needs a fourth act like we get in The Dark Knight. I think he tells too big a story, and that should have been maybe divided up some. Well, at that point, I think Nolan was like, look, Batman Begins was so good. <laughs> How do I right. uh, turn on the uh, the amp on this? How do I make this even better? And I think at that point, he was just trying to make an opera, to be quite honest with you. And, yeah. and that's where that fourth no, act I, you know, fits in. You know, I loved Logan. I thought Logan was really, really good. Um, this last year, I was uh, I loved Deadpool. I thought Deadpool was fantastic. That was great. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Richard Donner's uh, original, original Superman. Superman, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my frustrations with Man of Steel, because I think that you know Donner and the writers of Superman get what what the hopefulness of that character that it's frustrating to see how Superman is being treated as this you know, darkly cynical post 9-11 kind of reactionary feel to it. And it's, look, like, I get that that's somebody ar- somebody's artistic vision. It, it just kind of doesn't work for me, but I don't begrudge anyone who's, who's appreciating that. Um, you know, but, I, you know, my superhero, I, there's some schlock movies I love, too. I'm a huge fan of Mystery Men from 15 years back, <laughs> yeah. 20 years back. I never had a chance um, to see it, but I remember it. Movie. Yeah. Oh my God, that movie is so funny. <laughs> it's, so, it's so dopey, but so fun. Matt, switching topics for a second, how did you become the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes? You know, I was, uh, I've been covering entertainment on the web for, at this point, God, almost 20 years, and um, had been at Yahoo Movies for a few years, and was uh, had left there to try and start my own business, which didn't work as well as I'd hoped and was looking to get back into the scene and saw that Rotten Tomatoes was in this transition period and needed an editor-in-chief and uh, managed to get in front of the right people and come into the site and, um, you know, really build on the base that the team had already kind of established uh, you know, starting in 97 and it's been, it's been, I mean, honestly, it's been great. At what point did you start noticing that Rotten Tomatoes was basically superseding every other movie review recommendation on the planet? Um, we started to notice there would be some mention on, um, like a late night talk show. I remember this is, this will tell you how old, uh, this particular reference is. I don't even remember what the movie was, but Bradley Cooper had done, uh, an, a appearance on uh, Jay Leno's show and was trying to explain to Leno what Rotten Tomatoes was because <laughs> how he would you know, pay attention to the scores for a movie, right? Wow. And, and then it became like, by the time we got the second or third mention on either The Daily Show or, or Stephen Colbert um, on Comedy Central, and then we started seeing more and more of the late night mentions 
I thought, okay, if we are, if we are known enough that the late night shows can make that joke because they know that it is a broad enough awareness that the audience will get it. That means we're someplace. That means that that to me was, was more of an indicator of the acceptance of the public and the awareness of the site than anything else. So you guys at that point became mainstream and what changes did you have to do as an editor in chief to sustain the amount of traffic that was coming in? And did you have to change your business model to be able to kind of just fit, you know, the, the size and the scale that the site was, uh, was being pushed into? Yeah. You know, the, the biggest difference is that we now see more reviews come in for a movie than ever before. Um, when we, when I first started here, uh, a big movie might get a hundred, 110 reviews. And we thought, wow, that's a lot of reviews. For something. <laughs> right. There are, you know, because we send traffic, you know, a, a big part of it is that we link to every review. So, you know, the way I always think about it is, is it is in our best interest to send as much traffic to the critics um, to keep them in business. Cause without those critics, there's no rotten tomatoes. So, you know, now it's the process of bringing in reviews every week um, has gotten bigger and bigger because there are more reviews. It used to be, you know, when I first started, we probably would bring in, I don't know, six or 700 reviews a week. Um, now we're probably 1500 movie reviews alone. And, you know, about four years ago, five years ago, we added TV reviews. That was one of the biggest changes that we needed. Yeah, that was the biggest change is that there was so much good TV. We had to get into that. Speaking about the amount of movie reviews that are getting in, I wanted to talk to you about the contradiction also in that statement. Uh, The more reviews you keep on getting in, the more critics uh, we see being let go from major outlets as well because of the decline of print or just digital just isn't adding the amount of revenue uh, that some particular companies hope for TV critics are being let go here in uh, New York. Uh, Neil Rosen uh, was, was let go after 24 years. Where do you see the amount of movie critics today? Uh, is it, is it younger critics uh, that maybe aren't an, as an, maybe they're not as academic, uh, intellectually academic about films or is it more of a moviegoer critic uh, that's that, that's a part of Rotten Tomatoes today? You know, it's 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 all over the place. We have, you know, to your first point about critics, you know, longtime critics and their change in employment status. Uh, as much as we can, when somebody leaves an outlet and and opens their own site, for instance, we try and follow them wherever they go. Um, that is awesome. Because we want to keep those you know, as much as we can, uh, you know, some people just hang it up, but as much as we can, we do want to follow them. Um, there, there is a shifting that, or if not shifting, there's a expanding demographic of younger writers that are native online publishers that, you know, a lot of them do have a strong background in film. Um, but we are also seeing a shift in that sometimes it's people with less academic as far as, you know, arts criticism study. And in some cases, it's people who've actually spent time working in the industry and which gives a different perspective, but I think, you know, just as valid because I think, you know, it's another way of understanding the art is to make it, Um, you know, for whatever anyone says, I think both are valid. You can study, you know, critical theory, or you can actually learn to make movies as a point of view on critiquing them. Um, and, And ultimately we're trying to, you know, find what, at the end of the day, really what we're doing is we're looking for insight. Like who's got interesting insight into a movie. Uh, and at that point with, with that philosophy, it almost, you know, this will sound bad taken out of context, but it would almost not matter how they're publishing and what platform, because really it's the message and the insight and the analysis we're looking for. Um, from varying points of view. So if that means, you know, you're publishing online and had never published to print, that's okay. You know, we are studying how we're going to deal with the future of what happens when people are only publishing video reviews and not writing anything. What happens when, you know, as somebody, you know, what happens when somebody starts tilting into only reviewing on a platform like Twitter or Snapchat (laughs) or 
I mean, it's, it's one of those things that there's constant discussions with us in how are we going to take this site that existed for almost 20 years and has a particular, you know, you asked about changing the business model and, and it really comes into the technology. And as more and more audience, more and more of the audience is shifting to not just mobile platforms, but, but social platforms that are not desktop.com platforms. Um, it's important for Rotten Tomatoes as an entity to not to be to for us to be able to evolve with that and not just be tied to this desktop.com that started the whole thing 20 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's, you know, how are we going to analyze and and curate and link to or propagate reviews from social platforms? You know, I mean, I can, you know, imagine a world in which, you know, and I wish I was more of a futurist than I am now, but, you know, we, we, we right now look at, we're still at the end of the day, no matter what the app, we're still functionally looking at a screen to read something or, or watch something. Right. But I could see a world in, you know, as you look at something like an Alexa, where it's a totally audio based user experience somebody who grows up with that is going to think about a way to publish a review in that environment. And then how does an entity like Rotten Tomatoes, if we determine that that is a valid review, how do we make that part of our offering without any visual indicator? Right. So it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a constant thought about as there's this crazy evolution in platforms how do we keep up? Just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about some of the criticisms that Rotten Tomatoes has has uh, has gotten uh, in the last several years. You know, do you feel that Rotten Tomatoes in any way has has improved and enhanced movie review criticism, movie criticism uh, for the better, or do you feel that some of the opponents, such as the the critics who say that an algorithm, a number, should not be the end all to be all of the art and the effort and the sweat that goes into a movie. Well, I, I believe, look, if I thought we were damaging film criticism, I I wouldn't be doing this job. Um, I think that philosophically it is important that as a culture, we study and analyze the arts and culture that we consume. So through that lens, I believe that we are bringing criticism and bringing the concept of art criticism to an audience that otherwise would not be interested. And it is not our intention to replace people going and reading individual reviews, which is why we try and make them available as much as we possibly can. Um, It's very important, you know, as I said earlier, it's important that we send traffic out to those critics, not just because we need those critics to stay in business, but that's, that's important. So if somebody wants to read individual reviews, please, please do, please absolutely find the critics that you like to read. Uh, we exist. I think one of the biggest services is that for somebody who doesn't necessarily feel like they have the wherewithal for whatever reason to seek out individual critics, I think that we are a good entry point. And I think that we can help get people to, dig deep and follow more critics than they would otherwise have. Um, and again, I think that we are making the concept of criticism appealing to people who, you know, it's an audience that previously only ever cared about, may have only ever cared about thumbs up or thumbs down from Cisco and Ebert. Right. Uh, right. So now it's, it's, we're doing that with thousands, you know, hundreds of critics. So, uh, I really see us as championing, championing the idea of criticism. And, you know, it's really important to me that, that that still is the bread and butter and the most important thing that we do on the site. Matt, before, uh, this is my last question, but there are 58 million Hispanics living in the United States, 600 million Spanish speakers around the world. What of the Latino Spanish language film critic? on La Opinión, El Diario La Prensa, El Nuevo Herald in Miami. Um, The number one movie-going demographic in the United States are Latinos. 
And a lot of them don't necessarily speak English, so they want to be able to read uh, a movie review in Spanish. How is Rotten Tomatoes handling that? And are there any plans to add or include Latino film critics moving forward? There are about four or five dozen Spanish language critics that we work with, um, that we bring their reviews into the site. And the pull quotes are in English, but they point to full Spanish language reviews. Um, so we are trying to serve that audience. Um, it's, it's something that is, uh, on my mind. Um, you know, believe me, like as much as you may be thinking about critics, it's, I, I guarantee you, I think about the state of criticism and, and who's adding their points of view even more. Um, so that's definitely a priority for us. Uh, and those reviews affect the tomato meter just globally. Um, so, you know, most of those critics are from Mexico and from Spain. Uh, but it is an area that we are very interested in rounding out specifically, you know, not just to serve the U.S. audience but that speaks Spanish, but the audience worldwide. Uh, and, you know, that goes for other areas that we're constantly trying to analyze and seeing, you know, where we're going to go next and whose voices we need to add. Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, outside of Rotten Tomatoes, uh, where can people see you? I know you're on the web, radio, television. Yeah, they can. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Matchity, M-A-T-C-H-I-T-Y. Uh, I have a web review show that I work on with some other critics uh, called What the Flick. Uh, that's on YouTube. <laughs> nice. um, yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm around. Uh, always catch me on twitter or catch me at the conventions when we uh where i get to go geek out professionally nice matt atchity editor-in-chief of rotten tomatoes thanks so much for being on the highly relevant podcast thank you very much it's time for jack did Let's begin with the top TV news. Ruben Blades will return to Fear the Walking Dead Season 3 on Sunday, June 4th. Comedian Kathy Griffin has been fired from CNN's New Year's Eve telecast over beheaded Donald Trump photo. CBS Evening News anchor Scott Pelley has been officially pushed out. It's official. Megyn Kelly will interview Vladimir Putin for her new NBC show. MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell is staying at MSNBC for the foreseeable future. And House of Cards Season 5 is streaming right now on Netflix. Switching over to music. Bruno Mars will perform at the 2017 BET Awards. Camila Cabello will perform at the Much Music Video Awards. Gloria Stefan's Broadway musical On Your Feet will close August 20th. And Katy Perry's new album Witness will release June 9th with a North American tour set for September 7th. And in digital and social media news, Apple's Carpool Karaoke version will debut August 8th on Apple Music. Twitter and the BBC partner for the first time on live video. Skype's new redesign looks a lot like Snapchat, and your TV will soon be powered by Alexa. Alexa Peña Vega, known mostly for her role as Carmen Cortez in the Spy Kids franchise, is very busy these days. From getting married and becoming a newborn mother recently, she's also starring in Destination Wedding, a new TV movie from the Hallmark Channel about a woman caught up in a love triangle. You're cordially invited to a Hallmark Channel Destination Wedding, where the maid of honor and the best man... You and Greg reuniting at the wedding. ...discover... We'll just get through this week and then never see each other again. It's the journey that matters. How do you know it's your one great love or if it's right? Alexa Penavega. There is nowhere else I'd rather be right now. She joins me now on the podcast. Hey, Jack. How are you doing? Hi, Alexa. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. So listen, I I just finished watching Destination Wedding. And, you know, it's funny because I'm watching it and I feel like I know people that have gone through that. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you know, you know what's actually funny? It's a true story. Get out of here. Yes, it really is. So the writer Nina took off to, um, I think she it was in Mexico. She took off to Mexico, not where we shot, but another place. And uh-huh. she got there and they were there for a couple of days and the wedding ended up getting called off. But everybody else was there except for the bride and groom. So they decided to make a fun vacation out of it. That is so crazy. So let's tell everybody, our listeners, uh, who haven't seen Destination Wedding because it comes out June 3rd and on the Hallmark Channel at 9 p.m., um, Tell them a little bit about what the story is and tell us about your character in particular, because she seems to be like the most level-headed person I've ever met in like 
television ever. <laughs> sure, sure. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so basically, Ellie is her sister's maid of honor and decides to kind of help her plan the most epic wedding. Really, she's kind of throwing her own dream wedding. Um, so she's kind of living vicariously through her sister because Ellie and her boyfriend, well, her boyfriend doesn't quite believe in marriage. So, so they're never going to get married, but they'll be together forever. Meanwhile, she's going to throw this epic wedding for her sister. But when they arrive in Mexico, the bride and groom don't show up. So Ellie's kind of trying to scramble to keep things together. And the only person who also knows that they're not show that they're kind of going through some, I guess, like fighting mm-hmm. is their, their, um, what do you call the man of honor? Like the best man. Right. <laughs> the man of honor. <laughs> no, the, the best man is, is basically the guy that she has to work with to kind of hide the fact that the bride and groom have not shown up yet. Um, but her and the best man used to date. She still has feelings for him. She doesn't really know what to do. And it just like craziness ensues, but it was so fun. We actually shot in Alcapulco. So it looks very different than most of the other Hallmark movies. Cause they usually shoot in Vancouver. Right. So this is a fun change of scenery. It was so gorgeous down there. The crew was absolutely amazing. And, and I definitely brushed up on some Spanish, which was really nice. How's life for you right now? It just seems like you're having a lot of fun and you're just really, truly enjoying your life. You have to, I think, you know, it's something that Carlos and I have been talking about um and we're, we've we've actually decided to make the move to maui so we're gonna be on Why maui, maui? full time so we used to travel there a lot we love the island life we love how peaceful it is and it's the complete opposite of la la is so hungry and please like showcase me i want to be famous and, so you just got sick of, of LA. la you got sick of the yeah. hollywood scene huh You know, more than anything, we want to raise a kid that isn't brought up in that, like, comparison kind of lifestyle. Like, everybody out here compares themselves. Very competitive. Whereas on Maui, all they want to do is surf and love one another. Um, (laughs) And obviously, wherever you go, you're going to run into things that you don't like, no matter what, no matter where you go. But... We just, I grew up on a ranch in Florida. I was not, I I was raised in LA, but I still had my ranch roots. I want to give Ocean different roots because no matter what, he's going to be on sets. He's going to grow up in this industry because we're in the industry. So I want to give him that kind of normal outside of this industry life. And I felt, we both felt like Maui was the best place for that. Would you, would you, would you want Ocean to be a part of the Hollywood scene or do you want him to be a doctor or something that has nothing to do with both of your careers? You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to what he wants. And, you know, for Carlos and I, we were both such hams when we were younger. And it was very clear that we wanted to be entertainers. There was no denying that from a very young age. So for for Ocean, if that's something that he wants to do, we're not like those parents. Like we genuinely had great experiences growing up in this business that if he wanted to do it, we are all for it. I'm not that person who's like, I would never let my kid be an actor. He has to go. He has to go through all the schooling first. And then if he mm-hmm. wants to be an actor, he can't. No, you can do both. I did both. And I absolutely love the way I was brought up. It's it's really the only life I know. And I'm so happy. Like I'm, I could not be happier. So it just comes down to if this is something he wants to do, great. If he's not into it, because I have siblings who this is the last thing they would want to do. My mom just was like, okay, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, I will support you. That's cool. Cool parents. Now, are your parents going to miss you because you're so far away? Yeah, I know. Well, Carlos's dad is not happy about this because most of our family is in Florida. So Yeah, that like, seems like, right, what great. is it, like so, 16, 18 hours? It, it, it's a tw- I think it's like 12 hours. And and for him, he's just like, great, I have a grandkid and I have to go 12 hours to go see him. <laughs> um, but, you know, but he also gets why we're doing it. I, I think it's just, even for Carlos and I, like, we want to be able to, we have to recharge. I, I get it. This business is fun and awesome and it has a lot of perks, but it also takes a lot out of you. What are the and struggles that wanna... you've gone through specifically that that have maybe soured the experience of, of, of the Hollywood limelight? I think the biggest thing is the community. One, very rarely do you find, I guess, we're not even like we're young, but we're not that young. Uh, everywhere else in America, 
you'll find people having kids our age, but not in this industry. So mm-hmm. we're, we kind of, we're kind of like out of the loop there. Uh, we don't have a lot of people that we can relate to. Um, and just kind of the types of stuff that we like to do. It's really hard to find a solid community in LA. So there it, on Maui, it just so happens like we travel there a lot. So we've made a bunch of friends and there is a, like a very big, large young kind of like we both met at Bible studies. So there's like a young Christian community. All of them have like kids around ocean's age or, or about like two and under. Wow. And we just thought, Oh my gosh, we actually have friends and people who understand us out here. We should go to Maui. And your spirit <laughs> and feels at peace there, right? You feel like your 100- soul kind of just belongs there. 100%. I mean, like for us, we're very faith oriented. So it's great. But I think no matter what you believe in going out there, you do feel this sense of peace. And that's why people go there for vacation, because it just feels so good. So for us, it was really the right, the right move. Let me ask you, what differences have you noticed uh, with child actors such as yourself when you were doing Spy Kids, and the youth, the, the kids of today? Has that oh. changed? Is that gap really wide or is it basically yeah. the same? No, I think it's completely night and day and it's so frustrating. Okay, so I think you have two things. On one hand, I think social media is great because you have kind of more access to people and you also have a way to communicate with your fans in a way that's much easier and much better than back than, than it was like when I was doing Spy Kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you want to have your own voice, you can do that without anybody altering it whatsoever. However, it is just made everybody so accessible and like like too accessible. And also... It, the the way people become competitive because of it it's really kind of taken away the art of what we do and the like the kind of it, it seems so much more special before whereas now i feel like social media is kind of like tarnishing film in a way mm-hmm. not that i feel like a lot of people hire based on the followers and nowadays like as long as you have a good following, you can get a movie made. Not that that wasn't the case back in the day um, with like just certain big stars, but now more so like people who probably shouldn't be doing movies <laughs> are doing <laughs> movies and power to them. Hello. If you, wh- whether or not you are ready to do a film, if somebody says, Hey, listen, I want to give you this much money and you to be a star of a movie. Who's going to say no, no one. Like, why would you say right, no? Right. But I will like, so, but, but it's just kind of given these, these young kids, this sense of entitlement. And it's so bad because no one should ever be entitled, but we've just kind of lost, we've lost this respect for one another. And I think it's because we have this, this like social media thing where we can say and do whatever we want, no matter how old we are. And we feel entitled to all these things because we have X amount of followers. And it's a very strange thing. Like the one thing I, uh, my, my parents did really well. My mom is, was such a good mom raising us was she knew the power of no she is a mom right. and if extremely we said important that we know, wanted yeah. something she, yeah like she would be like, no you're not doing that like you cannot do that and and it was funny because you know it didn't matter if if there was like a huge movie on the line or whatever she was like you know what sorry you're not going to do this movie because you're not in the right place right now i love that because she made sure that family and raising her kids was first. Now, how do you use social media? I think that we've been given this awesome platform. And th- I know everybody will say, like, you know, I'm not at all. Like, don't don't look to me for advice or whatever, because, you know, people don't want to be role models. But here's the here's the truth. If you have any sort of following whatsoever, even if you don't have a following, you're going to end up being a role model to someone. So regardless if you are Timmy who works at Ralph's or, or, you know, Brad Pitt, like you're a role model. So for us, we want to kind of look at these as a platform to be able to inspire people and to be as uplifting as we can be. And we also want to be transparent. So we're going to have good days and we're going to have bad days. And that's kind of why my husband and I, we started vlogging and we have this YouTube channel and it's just our family and it's so silly. We don't do anything special. We just, we just live our lives. But we found that like at the end of every vlog, we end it with something called a wow, the words of wisdom. And nice. usually it's an inspirational verse. Like it's, it's like an either inspirational verse that means a lot to my husband and I, 
or a quote or something we've experienced that day or that week that we just kind of want to talk to people about and and just say like you know what we don't know the right way to deal with this but this is how we dealt with it how would you guys deal with it and, and it's, it's also and therapeutic look right at all of our comments so therapeutic and it's great because all the comments have been so positive like you have people on there praying for each other and just loving <laughs> on one another and and it's awesome because it's people from all walks of life just interested in being positive and it's very rare to have that so we have a really cool community on our social network and and i'm very fortunate and thankful for that yeah, but you have to set thing. it up that way because yeah. you are in control look i obviously know you from spy kids but i also know that you happen to be hispanic and it was interesting because when i was watching <laughs> destination wedding there was a moment where javier which was one of the event planners for the wedding that came up to you and Greg, uh, your boyfriend in the show, and was speaking in Spanish about the food. And you had no idea, yeah. quote unquote, what he was saying. So the question is, yeah. you, your character <laughs> obviously is not Latina, yet we most of no. us know that you are Hispanic. It's interesting, isn't it? Because <laughs> there's a lot of Latino actors that get pigeonholed and stereotyped into playing Latino roles. Mm -hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's limiting. With you, you happen yes. to be able to play off the American girl who doesn't know any Spanish and is not Hispanic. How, how do you treat that? How do you, do you like that? I think it's a very interesting place. So my husband looks very Hispanic. He's Dominican and Spanish. And there's no going around the fact that that is a Latino boy. Like <laughs> he is very brown and right. it's, it's hard for him because he like, he really only has a handful of roles that he can play. And thankfully uh, the industry is becoming so diverse that those roles are opening up and they're not the typical, here's your gardener or your pool boy, or, you know, the guy who works at the restaurant roles. They're actually, really great powerful roles right like in now, greece i've been very yeah exactly like kind of what they're doing now they're, they're really changing the game and opening things up for for diversity and i'm so thankful for that but at the same time like it's hard because when people think okay what is what is somebody who's hispanic like what do they look like everybody <laughs> immediately thinks one thing in their head and there's this great kind of meme this photo that's like going around online and it's a photo of like I think 10 different forearms and therefore like some are like really white. Some are very black. Some are kind of like that caramel color, all different colors. And they're like, this is what being a Latino looks nice. like. Nice. Like, we are, we don't come in one color. We look like, we look like you. We look like her. Like We really are so kind of multi. We just got a lot going on in our culture. Right. And it's hard because people want to label you as one thing. But for me, I've kind of had the opposite problem in the sense like I've had a harder time getting accepted in in my own like kind of Colombian community because are you I Colombian? Look, Is would, that your heritage? Say, I'm Colombian. Yeah, I'm from Colombian. what part? And people my father's from Bogota. Get out of here. My parents are from Barranquilla. No way. Okay, I was about to say, I have a lot of family in Barranquilla. Yes. So, so I have family all over, which is amazing and great. Well, fun fact, Sofia Vergara, who is also Colombian. Barranquilla, right? She is a blonde. That's right. She's, yeah, she's also, she's a natural blonde. But she had such a hard time getting work as a blonde because people want, they picture a Latina with like that dark hair, uh -huh. dark skin. So she had to start dyeing her hair dark in order to get roles but i think what like i'm hoping now is that people start seeing like i don't want to have to pick one because i'm not just one my mother is like half white half french from florida and so she looks like a white girl i mean she is a white girl but, um, and my father is like full 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 colombian so Am, am I supposed to choose? No, I am both of those things, and I'm so proud of it. So where you I identify from. being Hispanic, and the question is how important is Spanish language uh, to raising your kids? So, so important. Do Hold you on. want your kids to be bilingual? Do you want them to speak Spanish? Yeah. Do you want them to be so, Latino? So with, with Ocean, 100%. With Ocean, I mean, my first language was Spanish. So with him, I didn't know that. Obviously, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with so Ocean, you learned English more than anything. Yeah, I learned English just because I was around people who spoke English. But in, the in, in our home, we only okay. spoke Spanish. Yeah. So our big thing is we he's going to learn English regardless. We're we're he has here. To. We're in this, like he's going to learn English in school, wherever. 
I want him to speak Spanish. I want him to be able to have both. He like my my grandparents hardly speak any English. I mean, the people around us in our families, they don't speak much English. So it's really, it'll be good for him to kind of have that at home. And obviously he lives in the States, so he's going to learn English regardless. So I would love for him to be speaking Spanish at home because it's so much harder to learn later on. My Spanish nowadays is not great. It's fine. But how often am I speaking Spanish? Like, sure, when I speak to my family, but, but other than that, what about Carlos? Do you speak Spanish with Carlos? No, we speak to each other in English. Is that deliberate? Yeah, I think just naturally you're just, you get so used to it, that this Uh is kind of what you do. Um, But we really need to be focusing on speaking in Spanish around. Oh, you open your opportunities, you know, you open your career opportunities, you open your social opportunities. There's 600 million people in the world that speak Spanish. And that means work. That means friends. That means opportunities. Just even your mind being able to speak both languages is Mm -hmm. just so good for you to be able to understand both and communicate, just communicating with, with both, uh, with both like, just having both is just so important. So, so the the goal is to, that yes, Spanish is uh, hopefully his first language. You know, it's it's interesting because I when I look at you, I do look at you as an American actress, uh, and not so much as a Hispanic actress. For example, no people you don't. D- yeah, for example, you for some reason the Latino press, like People in Espanol magazine, like Univision, Telemundo. Uh, Ola USA and, and all the other Latin outlets, I don't see you covered there as much as you are in the Anglo market. Have you ever questioned why that is? And have you tried to do something about it? You know, it's interesting. I've never done anything about it, but I've found I've, it's like I said earlier, I find it harder actually being accepted in the Hispanic market. Isn't than, that crazy? And I do. Yeah. And I, and I know it has everything to do with the fact that I don't look super Latina. Like now if I was out there posting Instagram photos where, or like videos where I'm just like, Hola, hola, mi gente, and like going <laughs> off and like, you know, I think they would be like, Oh, okay. Now she's Latina. But because I'm not doing that, that doesn't change anything of who I am. So, so it is interesting. It's kind of funny because, there's so much of like, like Latinos being like, well, wait a minute, I won't work. I want to be noticed, all this stuff. But you got to notice your own people, too. Absolutely. <laughs> like, like, look, I've been out there for a while. Come on now. That is so crazy. Well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun um, with your career, with your life, with your family. Uh, what are the next projects that you got coming up? Are you going back to film anytime soon? Yeah. So there are a couple of really great uh, things happening right now. Obviously, we're focused on this move. Um, but my goal is to kind of stay in the Hallmark family for a while. They've been so good. And their movies usually shoot um, like three weeks at a time. So I'm really able to be a mom and focus on my baby without having to go away for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have some great things coming up with Hallmark that I'm excited to announce. Um, and then a couple, I, we're teaming up with a company. I don't know if I'm allowed to completely announce this yet, but we're teaming up with a company on the production side of things uh, as far as developing our own projects, my husband that and I. That is um, wonderful. And I hope that some Hispanic projects are also you know, part of the pipeline. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so you'll probably be seeing that within the next couple of weeks. That is um, incredible. Alexa Pena Vega, yeah. thank you so much for being on the podcast. You can thank catch Alexa you. on the Hallmark Channel's Destination Wedding premiering this coming Saturday, June 3rd at 9 p.m. Alexa, thank you so much for being Woo-hoo. on the podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. Before we head on to our next interview with October Gonzalez, here's three songs you might want to listen to this week. Baby Who, The Aces. Alguna Vez, Juanes, featuring Fonseca. Si cada día te amo más, ¿qué puedo 
Miracle Cannons. Fox's new game show Beat Shazam is hoping to fill a void currently in TV by bringing back the music game show. Its new host is Jamie Foxx, and co-host October Gonzalez will be his new star DJ for the show. Welcome to Beat Shazam! On my cue, October is going to play a huge hit song. She joins me now on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've done a lot of TV in your life, and uh, you've been involved in sports. Uh, music, I was unaware that you were a DJ. So when I heard the news that you were a part of Shazam, Beat Shazam, I, I was like, hey, when did that happen? How did you become involved <laughs> in music, and how did you eventually become a DJ? You know, um, well, I kind of grew up in the music industry. My dad was a big you know, one hit wonder, had a few big hits in the seventies and was always a huge music influence on me. Uh, inspired me for sure. What since a, you know, since I was a kid, my mom was also a singer. I grew up life and, um, kind of just always have been in music and it's always been a huge, you know, component of who I am. And then, um, when I got approached, for Beat Shazam, it was because I had worked with a really amazing, talented guy named Jeff Aploff, who is the creator of Beat Shazam. And he came to me and said, you know what? I think this show is going to be amazing. And obviously, working with Jamie Foxx, I mean, it's a win-win. So he said, you know, I think you'd be a great fit for this show. And uh, I went in and I met with Mark Burnett and Rob Wade um, and some other people, and it just kind of felt right. And when I got the call that I got it, it was just beyond, I was just beyond excited. So two questions here. Number one, how did you know the creator of Shazam? Was that, I mean, because the way you tell the story is just more like uh, it was serendipity. I'm sure you had connections, <laughs> friends of friends that knew each other. You guys met at a party. How did that relationship uh, come into effect? And uh, secondly, did you have to audition? Did you have to DJ for them to know what they were going to get from you? <laughs> so I met Jeff, Jeff Aplock because I actually shot pilot with him uh, about two years ago. So that's how we knew each other. Uh, and it was just awesome. And he's just the best teacher and um, just best person, funniest guy in the world. Uh, and he and I just clicked and he kind of knew, you know, what I was capable of and what I would probably be able to bring to beat Shazam. Um, and he had all the confidence in me in the world a lot, but he, he saw the vision and he knew what he wanted and he went after it. And here I am. So nice. Like, yes, for sure. For sure. Once you were there, did you know Jamie Foxx before that? I did not know Jamie Foxx. Of course I knew of Jamie Foxx. Who does it? But yeah, no, I had no idea who he was. That's all. So how was that um, encounter like? Personally, it was fantastic. Um, I mean, it's just nonstop. He, you know, you think when the cameras stop rolling that he just might be like more quiet <laughs> no. or more like to do, no. but that is not the case. He is on 24-7, does not stop. He's just absolutely brilliant. Can so I add to that? Can I add to that? Crazy. The first time I met him, he asks me, he goes, yo, let me ask you something. And I was like, okay, why is he why is he talking to me with that tone like suspicious? And he goes, Where where you from? Where you from? I said, I'm from New York. He's like, no, 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 no. Where are you really from? And I said, My parents are from Colombia, from Barranquilla. And why did I even mention that for? He busted out into salsa. And I'm talking like legitimate salsa. <laughs> It was, he was doing the, the, you know, like all the sound effects, all the instrumental effects. And then he got up and started dancing. And then at that point, uh, Carrie Washington, who was in the movie with him, Django Unchained, she walks in and she literally walks into like an orchestra dance-a-thon and there was like a party going on and they both started dancing. And so just to paint the picture for our audience that what your story is, is what the story is with him with everyone. This He does not stop ever. And his brain is just constantly working and, 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 and just creating. And it's, it's 
really a beautiful thing to watch. It's, it's an honor to be in his presence, for sure. So what does this opportunity mean for you? I know you've uh, been a part of uh, The View, and, and you know, for anybody, that's a career right there. Uh, what is this offering you that you're looking for? You know, I think for me, it's just a platform for me to, you know, kind of get out there and get, you know, people to see that, you know, I'm, I am authentically wanting people to win. I authentically relate to people. I can, I mean, I get along with every walk of life. I authentically and genuinely want people to win in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. That's just who I am. So for me to get the opportunity to bring music and fun and uh, uh, goodness to a show that everybody can watch, you know, from young to old to, you know, for everyone, for families, it's just such, it's, it's a privilege. And it's so much fun for me to, to really be a part of something I think is so great and so necessary right now in our world you know, as far as television goes. Now, I understand that part of the game show, Beat Shazam, is that two teams uh, have to go at each other and, and, and identify the songs before they 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 uh, match up against Shazam. It reminds me a lot of IBM's Watson in the Jeopardy game, where humans had to go <laughs> yeah. against artificial intelligence and find out who was smarter. Is that basically the same idea here? I mean, yeah, essentially, that's basically what it is as far when, when you get to towards the end of the game, the third round. In the beginning of the game, the first two rounds, you're going against two other teams of two, and you're trying to get the hit songs in the quickest amount of time. So you are going against people up until the very end, and then it's man against machine. And, you know, Suzanne can guess the song between, I don't know, two to five seconds, and then they're all different. So... You'd be surprised. Some of these people, they could literally hear one note of a song wow. and hit it and get it correct. It is so impressive. How do you think you would do against Shazam? I mean, I think I would do pretty good. It depends on the category. You know, we all have our have our categories that we uh, definitely feel more confident with. Which one? Which ones are so your for, weak spots? Would you say like merengue, bachata, or anything anything Latino? You know, I would say. Yes, definitely some of the Latin Latin hits are a little bit more challenging for me. And it, the same goes, I'm also quite challenged when it comes to country. So <laughs> I think we all are. are. Probably ones <laughs> where I'm like, you know, I don't know. I know, I know some. And you know, you're, you, you kind of get a little bit worried when you're out there and you kind of go, I don't know that many songs. I don't know. But what you have to remember is these are the biggest hits that have ever been made. Right. So, it's kind of, you know, you would definitely 100% heard these songs before. They're not just obscure songs. So, you know, it's definitely going to sound familiar to you. Whether or not you know it is the question. Uh, October, what's your heritage? I am Native American on my father's side and Irish and Welsh and English on my mother's. So, so the, the Gonzalez comes from your husband, right, Tony? It does. It does. Yeah. Do you get confused with being Hispanic a lot? Absolutely. And I, I it's the best. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, because, <laughs> <laughs> because I was going to say the, 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 the thing, it, by the way, it could always go one way or the other, but when you're not Latino yeah. by, by heritage or by culture, you want people to identify you culturally correctly. And so has it ever bothered you that people constantly think that you're Latina when you're really not? Do you wish them to, 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 to look at you just as a Native American or, an, or just an American? You know, what's interesting is my dad speaks fluent Spanish. My father's family fluent Spanish. But my dad is, is very into his roots. And he, is, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe... I mean, look, he, he doesn't consider himself Mexican, but my grandmother and my grandfather kind of, you know, have always been, they're very proud of being indigenous people. They consider themselves native instead of Mexican, if you will. And then my final question is, uh, if the show one day happens to end and you're on the search for your next opportunity, is music going to be that, that, that platform or do you want... I don't know, morning news? Uh, do you want a variety show? What else would you like to do outside of 
music? You know, I'm kind of interested in a little bit of everything. I think as long as I can bring something positive and put it out there, musically, entertain any sort of entertaining uh, format, platform, it, it, would be, it would be awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm just a creative person, and I feel like, you know, music is definitely my forte, um, but as well as talk, as well as, you know, a lot of other things. So I would love to explore different aspects for sure. The name of the show is Beat Shazam, and you can catch October Gonzalez every Thursday at 8 p.m. on Fox. October, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And before we say goodbye, I had a chance to stop by the Today Show this week and talk with my good friends Al Roker and Dylan Dreyer about the best movies, TV shows, and music albums you should see and listen to this June. Listen in. And here to jumpstart your June is our friend Jack Rico from showbizcafe.com. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, guys. How are you? Smells like a, pe- a bitter on. Hey, where's my popcorn? I mean, you got <laughs> right, right there. there. Right there. Ah, there it is. Okay, okay, so June's most anticipated films, I think the most anticipated, Wonder Woman. That's right. So it uh, stars Gal Gadot and Chris Pine, and it's set in World War One, and it's the origins of uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, but at the core, this film is really truly about love and the hate of war. Now, I had a chance to see it yesterday, and I can tell you this is as satisfying and fulfilling an experience as the genre can definitely deliver. Uh, it has a nice uh, mix of action, adventure, humor, and romance, and it actually plays off as a good date night movie, believe yeah. it or not. Um, expectations are really high. It's expected to make about $175 million globally on opening weekend and $80 million domestically. So wow. if those numbers stay yeah. true, mm-hmm. we could see a lot more female superheroes on the big screen soon. And first superhero film directed by a woman. Patty Jenkins, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they're just nailing everything, you know, on this one. That's and I so think fun. they're doing it really, really, really well. Another girl movie, uh, Rough Night. That's right. If you like raunchy comedy with a female cast that reminds you a bit of Bridesmaids mm-hmm. and Bad Moms, then you should definitely give this one a shot. It stars Scarlett Johansson, Zoe Kravitz, Kate McKinnon, Jillian Bell, amongst others. Uh, and it's about a bachelorette party gone wrong in Miami. Uh, two things to consider. Demi Moore does a cameo in this, Ooh. and Kate McKinnon actually wrote and performed a song called The Kiwi Song for the film, so that should be a treat for fans. Oh, wow. That's Speaking different. of treats, my kids, <laughs> uh, my son is waiting for The Minion, the minion yes. coming out in Despicable 3. That's right. So Despicable 3, the first two films of the franchise, have already done about $1.5 billion at the box office. Minions itself did about a billion dollars. And it has Steve Carell returning as the voice of Gru, who's now tempted by his evil twin brother, Drew, also voiced by Carell, uh, to return to his old villainous ways. Uh, This is critic proof. You know, these are the movies that it doesn't matter if you say anything wrong about it. It's going to make a lot of money. So this is going to be one of the big earners. It's our sister company. It's your sister company. Switching over to TV shows, I've been seeing the advertisements constantly for Fear the Walking Dead. That's right. Two-hour season premiere uh, on AMC. And the way the producers are calling this, it's uh, the ultimate experience for suspense and action to the point that they think that the audience won't be able to breathe uh, during this premiere. Wow, One thing to keep uh, you know note of is that uh, the character Daniel Salazar is returning. He's played by Ruben Blades, very popular, oh. so fans are going to be happy with his return. And then owns uh, Queen Sugar? That's right. Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey are the producers behind this. Comes back for season two on a two-night premiere, June 20th and June 21st. Um, and it's the journey of the siblings to once again uh, honor their father's legacy in the sugar cane mill. A lot of people love the first season. This one should be much, much better. Uh, and definitely watch out for it. And now to music, Coldplay has a new album. That's right, Coldplay. June 30th, they're dropping an EP. That's an extended play. So it's like a Mm -hmm. mini album, about Mm -hmm. five tracks. It's called Kaleidoscope. And the first one, the first single off this album is called Hypnotize. Chris Martin's calling it a bit of a dreamlike ballad, as you can see by the video. Um, And it's a companion album to their 2015 album called A Head Full of Dreams. So it's uh, anything Coldplay does nowadays is just really great. And Katy Perry's got a new album, Witness. That's right. It's called Witness. It's her fifth studio album, 15 tracks. Three singles have already been released. And in an interview, she said that she wanted to make an album that connects relates and inspires and i think she did uh, exactly that she has a busy rest of the year into 2018 she starts off her north american tour on september 7th uh she also is uh performing with ariana grande in manchester on june 4th in honor of the okay. victims of the attack and then in 2018 she's the new judge in uh, the new american idol 
That's right. Wow. All right. Very good. All well, right. Jack. Jack, thank Jack you Rico. so much. Always <laughs> good to see you. And that's a wrap for our 34th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Matt Atchity from Rotten Tomatoes, Alexa Peña Vega, and October Gonzalez for coming on the show. And I want to thank you guys, as always, for listening. If you want to get a shout out from us, tweet me at Jack Rico Official. You can now hear us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and Stitcher. Also, please subscribe and share with your friends. See you again next Friday on another episode of Highly Relevant! Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.